Let us now turn for our scripture reading. We turn to the book of Judges and the chapter 3. The book of Judges, the chapter 3. We commence our reading at the verse 12. We left off last Lord's Day. Judges chapter 3, the verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word this day. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlour, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand, and took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade, so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch, and shut the doors of the parlour upon him, and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came. When they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlour were locked, they said, Surely... He covereth his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlour. Therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sirath. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about ten thousand men, 
all lusty, and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines six hundred men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his most holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word to our hearts, to our never-dying souls, and all to the glory of his holy name. Well, dear congregation, I direct your prayerful attention once again to the words that I read earlier in your hearing there in the book of Judges and the chapter 3. We read from the verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. We continue week by week to go through our studies through this book, and we continue to see now how Israel's spiritual complacency and failure at the initial stage, and even now, their failure to completely destroy the enemy, the enemy who are occupying, many of them are still in the land, these Canaanite people, these heathen people, practicing abominable things, having false gods. Of course, as we sang in that Psalm 95, we know that there is only one God, but people have the gods of their imaginations, and that's who these people are worshipping, the gods of Baalim, Ashtaroth, and Molech. There are false gods in this world, gods of men's imagination. And the failure of God's people as they have been given this land by Almighty God, been delivered out of Egypt and brought into this land now of Canaan to be called Israel, their failure to destroy the enemy has led to ongoing problems. The Lord had warned them, If they did not destroy the enemy, the enemy would become as thorns in their side, and they would be a constant source of trouble to them. They would be a snare to them. There is always, as we see now, the sin of idolatry. Idolatry, these gods as we have seen, the god of Balin, the god of Ashtaroth, the god of Molech, they serve man. It's not so much that man serves these gods, but they serve man. You serve Balaam, he'll give you riches. You serve Ashtaroth, she'll give you pleasures of the flesh. You serve Molech, you'll have the pride of life. John warns us about these three triads of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vain glory of life. This triad has never left the human race. These are the troubles of man's heart. These are the inventions of men. We read, don't we, in Ecclesiastes, the Lord says, Behold, I have made man upright, but he has made many inventions. Solomon says, Behold, I've seen that God has made man upright, but he has made many inventions. Inventions of the heart and These gods, what do they do? Well, they make the people become like the people of Canaan. And then what happens, lo and behold, 
the people of Israel begin to end up serving their enemies. And that's what we see time and time again. They come under the subjugation of the Canaanites. And we see that happen here. It was their fault that they followed these gods. And the only remedy each time is by the grace of God to turn from their sin, to forsake the world, and to serve the living God. And it's true even today. If you serve sin, it will only lead to heartache and God's displeasure. And it will lead to great trouble of life. Instead of slaying the enemy, Israel made many friends in the world. And those friends only proved to be enemies in the end who brought them under subjugation. And it's true for any sin, any vice in the world. John reminds us, love not the world. He says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we come to chapter 3 here and the verses 12 to the verse 31 there. But remember last week as we considered, as we came into the chapter 3, it was not long after Joshua's death that they began to serve these false gods. This first generation didn't raise up their children in the fear of the Lord. And many of them married that first generation, or should we say the second generation. They married Canaanites. The men married Canaanite women. And the children of Israel, their daughters were given to the Canaanites. And God became greatly displeased at this. And he brought the people under great trial, brought the enemy against them. And for eight years, they served the king, Cushan Rishathaim, eight years, the king of Mesopotamia, remember, in that first part of chapter 3. Eight long years they served. He seemed to come out of nowhere. There's no mention of an invading force coming upon the children of Israel. And remember, we've got to get the scene in our minds Israel are by and large occupying the land. But this king from Mesopotamia, he comes in and somehow they begin to serve him. Because really they become like the rest of the world. And remember as I said, a house divided against itself shall not stand. And they didn't stand. They seemed to just very subtly fall into the hands of King Cushan Rishathaim, and for eight years they serve. And they realize that they're really losing their identity as the people of God, until finally they cry out unto the Lord, and the Lord raises up the first deliverer there, Othaniel, or Othniel, the Lion of God. And it's interesting, he comes from Judah. And of course, the great deliverer, of God's people is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. What a picture he served of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great example. He was a man full of valor and vigor for the Lord, and he delivers the people. Now we read these sad words again as we come to the verse 12 of the chapter 3, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. So for 40 years they had rest 
after Othniel delivered them. And then as soon as Othniel dies, the people go back and they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. It seems that Othniel served as some sort of restraint upon the people. This godly man, as soon as he dies, the children return back to their old ways, just how it was. And there's an immediate application here. Young people, the older generation are always concerned for you. When the Lord takes away those who are more mature in the faith, how will the younger generation, will you be able to stand? Are you grounded in the truth of God's word? What if God, and it's happened before, God has wiped out an older generation, but are the younger generation able to stand against the wiles of the devil, against the wickedness of this present world? Are you equipped What if the Lord were to take your parents? What if the Lord were to take those who are your spiritual parents among you? How will you stand? How will you stand in this world? Our prayer and our concern is for you, young people. As soon as Othniel is gone, the one who led the people, the people go into wickedness. Well, this is a terrible thing. Now, They did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And we reminds us that everything we do is in the sight of God. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Everything, do we realize, is open before God. And one day we shall have to give an account before God. There's nothing, as it were, we can do in a closet. There's nothing we can do in a secret place. The Bible tells us that, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are in all the earth. They go to and fro. And one day we shall stand before him. But you notice here that as this goes on, as the children now after Arthaniel dies, notice the Lord in his faithfulness acts against this ungodly generation. Verse 12b, And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice the text does not say the Lord permitted Eglon. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say he let him have a little bit of strength, but it actually says the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel. The Lord strengthened the enemy to move against the people of God. Do you see the absolute sovereignty of God, friend? We can't escape it. Don't ever try to escape the sovereignty of God. We must bow to it. Why is God doing this? Because these are his covenant people. And because God has promised that through Israel, the Messiah would come. The line of the tribe of Judah. He would eventually come into the world. He must keep this people. And that the evil that people perpetuate against God's people... Remember, God is working all things together for good to them that love him. Don't ever quote half that verse, please. I'm tired of people quoting half verses. God works all things together for, to them that love him, to them that are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Paul goes on to tell us that we should be conformed to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. 
It's not your pleasure. It's not your happiness. That's not the purpose of God in your life. But the purpose of God in your life is that you should be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's what God is doing. He is not letting the people prevail in their sin. And so what God does is He brings them under the control of an oppressive and an exceedingly greedy ruler whose name is Eglon. Well, the Lord is doing a work here. The king of Moab. Now, if you know anything about the Moabites, they were the kinsmen of the children of Israel, weren't they? Do you remember how the Moabites came into existence? Do you remember how Lot lived in Sodom? And remember what happened there to Sodom and Gomorrah, how the Lord rained down fire and brimstone upon those wicked cities, those terribly wicked cities. We don't want to speak about the evil that went on there. But remember, as they escaped, Lot's daughters lay with him so that they may preserve seed. Well, that was wrong. And it is out of those daughters came the Moabite people. And not a good people at all. Now, notice the first blow that the king gives to Israel. And by the way, the Moabites came against the children of Israel many times. They fought them on their way here to Canaan. But notice here what the king does. Or should I say even behind this, God is doing it. Not, not Eglon. The Lord has strengthened his hand. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. Remember what the Amalekites did. They attacked the children of Israel as they were passing through the desert. They attacked the children and the, and the women and the elderly. These are wicked people. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Now, many of you perhaps know that this is a reference to ancient Jericho. Deuteronomy 34.3 and the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees. It's called the city of palm trees, another name for Jericho. Now just think of this. What does this mean? What's the impact of all of this upon the children of Israel? Think of Jericho. What was Jericho? Jericho, as it were, was the prized city. It was the first city, the greatest city of all, to fall to the Israelites. You remember how the children of God marched round the seven days and twice on the seventh day, and the walls came down. They didn't have to mount over, they literally clave into the earth. That's what we believe. God caused them, they didn't have to walk over piles literally clave into the earth. And the city was handed over completely, destroyed, not a soul alive. And what a prized city that was. What a great possession. And now it is given back over to the enemy. And you can imagine what a shock this must be to Israel now. Because of their sin, mighty Jericho, that mighty power that fell by the hand of God, has been taken now back by God because God has empowered Eglon here. 
Well, all of that success, should we say, all of that success has now been lost back to the Canaanites. Well, why is God doing this? He's doing it to chasten his people. God is not doing this, and we must always view God's chastening not as an act of vindictiveness upon his people, but God is acting in love. All of his chastening is designed for the good of his people. All of his chastening is for the restitution and restoration of their souls back to the Lord. And perhaps the Lord's hand is heavy upon you right now. And you're feeling the smartening of his rod against you. You must always see it as his love. It's a terrible thing when God leaves a nation in its sin. It means really he's abandoned it. But God is doing this because he loves his people. And though he chastens them, he never completely casts them away. Because they did evil, he brings the enemy, but he doesn't destroy them ultimately. Trials may come and inflict upon us, but they will never destroy us. Well, what is the response of the people? Well, it's very slow. Remember last time, it was eight years that they were under oppression from the king of Mesopotamia. But now it's 18 years. 18 years. Verse 14, so the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Until, that is, they cry out unto the Lord. 18 years. You see, it's a longer period now. Much longer than last time. A further 10 years are added. And let me put it this way. Here's another lesson of application. This is a solemn lesson to us, friends. Remember, if you go back to old sins, it's a terrible thing. If you do not repent, and if we are slow to repent, what it means is that the heart and the conscience get, gets harder, and we are slower to repent the next time. We say, well, I, I repented last time, and the Lord forgave me. And so you remain in your sin longer. And so what happens is conscience becomes much more seared. Well, the Lord will forgive. Well, of course he does forgive. But generations pass on and time is wasted. Precious time is wasted. Do we realize we have a limited time here to serve the Lord? And you see it's a longer period. But blessed be God, he does forgive when we cry out unto him. Sometimes the pain's just too much. And we realize that the world is just an empty system. And there's no peace, there's no real joy, and there's no lasting satisfaction in this world. While sin may appear pleasant for a while, it begins to get painful. And they realize that they're losing their identity. They're under great oppression by this greedy King, the Moabites, or oh, this was a real reproach upon the people, wasn't it? The people here. Now, verse 15, But when the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. You see, immediately, God is a God at hand, isn't he? 
And this is such an encouragement for us. If we have sinned, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And that applies to the believer. If we know the Lord to be our Savior and we have sinned, He's just and faithful. David in that Psalm 86, the verse 4, he says, Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Then he said, Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee and thou wilt answer me. And the people did. They called upon the Lord in the day of trouble and the Lord answered and he raised up a deliverer. God is a God at hand, ready to forgive. And and we know that even before we ask, he knows our need. But he tells us in Isaiah 65, 24, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. God had already prepared a man for the job. God already prepared. And the most unlikely candidate, and there are many lessons we can learn this morning, about Ehud. Now let's just think for a moment back to the first deliverer, Othaniel. What a great man he was from Judah. A mighty warrior. A wonderful foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, full of strength from Judah, faithful. Well, but the Lord still gave him the spirit. He was full of the spirit, wasn't he, Othaniel? The Lord filled him with his spirit. And so it's not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit. But still he was a man full of vigor. But we meet with this man here, as these people are full of sin again and going on in the way of the world and they cry out unto the Lord in repentance and by the way, this is repentance in their prayer as they cry out unto the Lord, Lord forgive us, we have sinned. Now as we look at Ehud, I firstly want to apply this, we see the power of prayer, don't we? They pray, they cry out unto the Lord and the Lord hears And do we not need to pray today? Do we not need to be delivered from our present plight? Do we not need a raising again, a lifting up of the Lord? Do we not need him to come in for us? Now, as I say here, Ehud seems a completely different man to the last. And it just shows how the Lord can use all different kinds of people in his purposes. You notice in the verse 14... Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. Now, the name Ehud means together or united. That's what the name means. And uh, you know what Benjamin means. Remember, when he was being born, his mother Rachel called him Benoni, which means son of my sorrows. And then his father said, no, no, we'll call him Benjamin. And Benjamin means son of my right hand. And think of it here. 
Here is one that is completely unlike Benjamin. He, he's a left-handed man. And in fact, if you, you read the margin, it, it, it tells us there that he was shut off. If you look in your marginal reference, he was shut off of his right hand. Not only was he left-handed, but he was unable to use his right hand. The best Hebrew scholars say that's what the text means. So it was not just only the, the fact that he used his left, but he couldn't use his right hand. And, and think of Benjamin, son of my right hand, son of my strength. Now we know that the term right hand in the Scriptures is a very significant term, don't we? Who is sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father on high? The Lord Jesus. And time and time again, you think of the time when Joseph was there with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob blessed the one and not the other. And it was with the right hand. It's always the right hand. We give the right hand a fellowship. We speak of the right hand as that being of strength. Why, why does God use this language? Well, because most people use their right hand. And it's the symbol of strength. I'm sorry you lefties. But uh, it's just a, a symbol of strength, isn't it? Most people... I don't know how it is or why it is, but no, most people are endowed with more strength in their right hand. Some people the other way around. But that's the case. And so it seems here Ehud, who can't use his right hand, and is left-handed, here is a man that is not feared. And he is, acts, he is the one that brings the gift To this king, Eglon. And it's, it's not coincidental at all. And the Holy Spirit draws our attention to certain details here. Again, I say if you were to get a concordance and you were to study the Word of God, you'll be surprised how many times you see there's the reference to the right hand. Many times. Psalm 18, 35 Thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up. It's not that God's left hand or God's right hand is stronger. It's just a, a symbol of strength. God is giving his strength, and so on. You, you, you get the picture. You understand what I'm saying. And if you look there in your marginal reference in the authorized version, it says that he was shut of his right hand. So the suggestion is that he was unable to use his right hand. And also we read, And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. They were in subjugation to these people. They were under the rule, under the dominion of the Moabites, and here the king. And he was receiving presents. And it appears that Ehud, this deliverer, seemed to, 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 to be of no physical threat to the king whatsoever because when he asks for a private audience with the king, it's no problem. The king says everybody out the room. And he's quite happy there to be with Ehud. He posed no physical threat. You notice in the verse 18, and when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. 
And why was this? Because, well, he had presented no threat to the king. What a contrast between Nathaniel from Judah. Here, Ehud, this left-hander that proposed, that posed no threat. Now, in those days, it was not a politically correct society as it is today. We, we live in an awfully politically correct society where strength and ability, well, it was, this was something that was a positive thing and you certainly looked down upon those who had no strength. And so, when you, you, you consider this man here, Ehud, Israel would have thought, this man is totally ineffective. This is the last person we would choose. But the Lord has his secret weapon. Now many people shy away from this passage of Scripture because it frankly makes people, many people embarrassed. There are a lot of gory things that take place. There are some embarrassing things that we'll consider here. The deliverer of Israel seems to be an assassin. It speaks here of this king of being a very fat man. And there are some other things that we'll mention as well. Well, Ehud, he makes, verse 16, a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length. That's 18 inches. And he did girt it under his raiment upon his right thigh. So he makes this double-edged dagger or sword, as it were. And you can imagine the tensions building up. He goes in, he comes, and perhaps this is an annual gift that he comes to bring the king from the children of Israel. And, uh, well, there are guards, no doubt, watching, and the king's in his palace there, in his summer cooling house, as we read. And he slips through. He's got this dagger under his right thigh, hidden. The eyes of the ungodly are completely off him. The Lord has completely concealed this thing. Now, let me say that this is the word of God. Many people shy away from this passage of Scripture. The Word of God says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. No part of Scripture do we ever have a warrant to say, we're not going to teach on this. I, I can guarantee you, as we look at this passage, there are not many sermons on this passage. There are not many, as we look at it and as we consider what happens here, this man being stabbed to death and the gory things that take place. There are not many Sunday school lessons on this passage. There are not many things discussed and many people become slightly embarrassed because of some of the details that are here. Some people say this is just too blunt. The language is blunt and too shocking, too messy to be in the inspired Word of God. Well, let us not think ourselves wiser than God. Let us not be high-minded. And there are two pitfalls we need to avoid. Let's not do as some do. They spiritualize this passage. And the sword becomes the Word of God. 
You know, you see how Ehud puts the sword in the belly of this king. And they say, well, this can't be of God. Well, God is bringing judgment upon this wicked king and what is going on here. That's the first thing. We mustn't try to spiritualize everything. Or there are some who say, well, we mustn't be like Ehud. You know, Ehud's this bad man, this deliverer. And the lesson is, they say, well, we mustn't act like this. Of course, well, God is not telling us to go around and to kill people. But judgment is to be passed here. Now, the facts are plain and bare to see. I want you to notice in the verse 17, it tells us, He brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. Now, that's plain, blunt language, isn't it? He was a very fat man. And perhaps all the gifts that he's been receiving, the tributes, have caused this man to become a glutton. He is a man of considerable weight and considerable obesity. And you notice, if you look at the verse 29, some of the men that fight for him are described there as lusty. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty. Now look in your marginal reference there. It basically says fat. They were all like him. Now gluttony is a sin, friends. I don't want to get into this subject this morning, but we should know that. Gluttony is a sin. Now what is God doing with this passage? Well, let me just say, the narrative is this. What God is able to do with the most unlikely people, that's the first thing. Firstly, God loves his people. And he has to chasten them. And he has to bring them under subjugation for some 18 years. But God is chastening his people and God will use oftentimes the most unlikely people such as Ehud to bring about his deliverance. You think about it concerning the sufferings of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ there upon the cross. Just when Satan thought he had it all in the bag, the Lord Jesus Christ dealt a deadly blow to Satan. He was put to death by the hands of wicked men. But then, just at that time, Christ was suffering for his people. Their sins being laid upon him. The just dying for the unjust. What a blow that was. There is a sense in which we have the strength of the lion of Judah in the Lord Jesus. But he is also the lamb. Here we see something very subtle, something very powerful in the life of Ehud. The Lord Jesus, in his seeming weakness, just in that hour when he seemed weak, was mighty to save. And here Ehud... In his weakness, in his apparent weakness, and, and seeming to have, to have nothing to do to bring deliverance to God's people, brings about a mighty deliverance. I hope we see this. 
Now notice the verse 18. This king is described as a very fat man. And you know the Bible's just plain, blunt, and it gets to the point. It doesn't waste time about things. This greedy, obese man, and when Ehud, he Ehud, verse 18, had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. So it must have been quite a considerable present because there were others with him. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. Obviously the king didn't want people to know what's going on or maybe this is some secret or maybe he's going to be offered some, something else. But notice the verse 20. And Ehud came unto him and he was sitting in a summer parlour. Now you'll notice also in your marginal reference there it says house of cooling. You can imagine perhaps in the sweltering heat and this very obese man he had to cool himself off. You get the picture. Nobody else would be allowed there in this summer house. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. Well, why does he, this man, this king, arise out of his seat? Well, because Ehud presented no threat to him. He's got no power in his hands or in his arm or anything like that. He wouldn't suspect feeble Ehud, would he? And notice verse 21, And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And it says, and the dirt, and if you notice in the marginal reference there, it says his fundament, or his entrails, literally it could mean his intestines or the dung. Don't mean to be crude, but the Bible is straight to the point. His excrement came out. And of course this produced an awful smell, terrible smell in the room. And you'll notice the tie-in with this. Verse 23, Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlour upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlour were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet. Now again, if you notice in your marginal reference there, it says, does his easement. They thought this man was on the latrine or the toilet, covering his feet. When a man drops his trousers, what does he do? He covers his feet. And they thought, well, he's relieving his bowels. The smell was too awful. Three things take place here to make all of this possible. The king said, let me be alone. The doors were locked and the smell. And this all allowed Ehud to escape. And it was done. So the king didn't respond. 
They'd become embarrassed here. They thought surely he's relieving his bowels. But no. His bowels were on the floor. And they tarried, verse 25, until they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Serath. Now what's the application in this most bizarre event? Well, I think it's, as I said, many people shy away from this. You won't hear many Sunday school lessons or Bible studies, and you certainly probably won't hear any many portly pastors preaching on this passage either. But there's a lesson here, friends. And the lesson is this, that while some people avoid this passage and they say, well, the deliverer is an assassin, you can't get away from verse 28. Notice, I'll read from verse 27. And it came to pass when he was come, he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me. Now notice, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. You see, unless the Lord had sent and commissioned Ehud, it was the Lord that gave deliverance, the people of God never would have got behind him. That's the point. The point is the Lord uses the most unlikely people because so often God's people are complacent and he will use that which is weak, that which is not mighty, that which is not esteemed among men to move his people. It's been like that through the millennia, friends. Through the millennia. Sometimes it takes a little man And the Lord fills him with courage. Here is a very strange hero. The left-handed man who couldn't use his right hand. But he used it to God's purpose. That's the point of the whole passage. So that God gets the glory. Not man. You may feel weak. You may feel pathetic. But the Lord uses the things that are not to shame the things that are. It's not by might. It's not by strength. The Lord shut the eyes of the prison guards or or the guards at the palace so that they didn't see the dagger. They didn't see anything. The king overestimated himself. But God is never to be underestimated. Paul says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God hath chosen. Yea, in things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the lesson. You see, the world dismissed Ehud. And the world dismisses the cross. It's foolishness to the world. The world dismisses the Lord Jesus. There at Calvary, there were men walking past, wagging, shaking their heads and saying, If thou art the Son of God, get thyself down. Save thyself. Did you see, at his weakest hours, I said, he dealt Satan a death blow. Just whenever we think all is lost, maybe in our lives, God is able to deliver his people. We may think all, there's no hope, there's no strength in Israel, but the Lord is styled as the strength of Israel, the strength of his people, and we need to come back to the word of God. We need to come back to Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. The preaching of the cross is what we need in this land. God will save his people. And it's not by apologetics. He will save every one of his, but the problem is we're not trusting God to save. We want men to you know, present the theology that we like or the teaching that we like. We think, well, people will be saved if they just preach on these things. We need to preach the word, simply the word, as it is. As it is in the Scriptures, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, that men will be humbled, humbled. That's what we need in this country. We need people to be humbled, that God can save them or He can damn them. Do you realize that, friend, today? God can save you or he can damn you. He has the right to do either. If you fear, it's because God, the Bible says, God doeth it that men should fear before him. And Solomon says, and I know that what God doeth, he doeth it forever. Will we bow in the presence of a holy, sovereign God for once? No credit to man. Israel repented because God brought a wicked king upon them. And he made them repent. They never would have repented were it not of God. Never. Nobody ever repents unless God moves in the heart. And that does not excuse anybody because except ye repent, ye will perish. You will perish. We need to humble ourselves. And let me say this, the preaching of the cross, it might be foolishness to the world, but it's the power 
and the wisdom of God. And what there was a time in my life. I mean, I read those words in Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. That was me for so long in my life. But then God opened my eyes to it. You see, friend, Christians, I'm telling you, I want to address Christians. God has to open the eyes of sinners. You can't do it for them. But pray. Pray that God will work mightily in our land, in our churches. It must be the Lord. Because the Lord alone will save. Ehud, he made a double-edged sword. I don't want to spiritualize this, but he pushed it all the way in. The half, the hilt, and I think there's an analogy there. We have the Word of God. Use all of it. Not half of it. All of it. We must preach the whole counsel of God. Not half of it. Not the bits you like and the bits you fancy. But all of it. Never be ashamed of it. Never be ashamed of it. You look back in history, you look back to men like Luther, who would have thought Luther would have done anything. The Augustinian friar. But what a mighty work the Lord did through Luther. What a mighty revival. We must not underestimate the power of God, the wisdom of God, Again, this passage is about God's grace to keep his people. His power to judge the ungodly and wickedness. And when we think of it all, what he did for us at Calvary, it's truly amazing, isn't it? That God, in the person of his Son, became the Lamb that He might save us. That He, not might, that He would save us. And He wants us to rest upon Him. And how long did the people have rest? Eighty years. Four score years. Score years, 20 years. 80, that's double. What rest we have in our dear Saviour. Everlasting rest to the saints. All because of His suffering. All because of His death. Now, as I close, when we think of our Saviour, there was no dishonesty in our Saviour. Ehud here, there is a level of deception. There is stealth. But there was nothing in that, in our Saviour. He was holy 
harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Why? Because he needed to be in order to be the Savior. There at the cross, be pierced for our transgressions that he might take us to heaven. Will we not serve him? Will we not trust him? All that the Father's given him will come to him. But they will only come, friends, when his word is preached properly in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in all of its grandeur, when we set forth Christ. Well, may the Lord revive us again and deliver us from This was a time of gluttony. We live in a world of gluttony. May the Lord deliver us from it and deliver many others by his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.